All right, good evening, everyone. If you grab a seat, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. I want to invite you to go to Acts chapter 20. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, we'll be in the fifth book in the New Testament, the book of Acts, as we continue talking about where our church is heading over the next decade and what God has for us as we go forward. Uh, And then what's going to be true of this room. If you were here last week, you'll know kind of where we started. If if you weren't here, I invite you to go back and at least listen to last week. This is kind of part two uh, of a two-part kind of mini part of this uh, series we're doing. Uh, And really what we started with last week What we started with last week was a simple observation that's true of you, whether you are a Christian or not. So even if you're in this room and you're not a believer and you're not even sure what to do with God, here's a little thing, just a little sentence that's true about your life. It's that little phrases we learn shape how we live. Uh, Like these little phrases we learned along the way end up shaping how we live. So there's these little things you've picked up along the way that you don't even realize you've picked up all the way. So see if you can finish this sentence that you don't want to throw the baby out with the... Or or don't count your chickens before they... And like most of you have never actually like dealt with a chicken, a live chicken in a real way. And the baby out with the bathwater thing is like a thing that's so like beyond our lifetimes that you have no idea where it came from. And yet here are these little phrases, like don't count your chickens before they hatch. Like don't like anticipate something before it's actually there. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater is this little phrase we've internalized where you don't want to get rid of the good stuff while you're getting rid of the bad. And so it's like these little phrases. And at no point in your life did you sit down and you're like, I'm going to memorize things about chickens and bathwater. Like, like that never happened for you. And, and yet somewhere along the way, you picked up that phrase and it stuck with you because little phrases we learn shape how we live. And again, what we said last week, what I'll say again this week is that there are six phrases, six sentences, six little collections of words that I want you to start to internalize and memorize in the same way because I believe these six phrases will shape how you live. I'll share them again with you this week. Number one is that it's all about Jesus. Number two is that God's people delight in God's word. Number three is that life change happens in relationship. The next one is that found people find people. The next one is that saved people serve people. And finally, grateful people are giving people. And last week, if you were here, we covered the first of these three you'll see on the screen. And tonight, we'll look at these next three phrases. Again, remembering that it's these little phrases we learn that end up shaping the way that we live. So again, Acts chapter 20, we're going to be looking at tonight at a speech. This entire thing we'll look at tonight is a speech that the Apostle Paul gives to the elders at a church called Ephesus. Like in the city of Ephesus, he's speaking to the elders, the leaders of the church, and he's going to give a speech on his way out. So this is like his goodbye speech to a church, and here's what he says in Acts chapter 20, verse 17. It says, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I have lived the whole time while I was with you, from the first day when I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Now, I've underlined three sentences on the screen here, if you're looking along with me here. And um, I want to cover each of these kind of sequentially, three three different sentences here. So the the first one you'll see at the very end is is that he has Jewish opponents. Now, uh, I think we just need to take a moment to be real clear about this right now. Um, Right now in our culture, um, there's just all sorts of things buzzing uh, about Jewish people or anti-Semitism or anything like that. And and here's what I'm going to be abundantly clear on. Um, If you have a problem with the Jewish people, you will have a problem with Jesus who is Jewish. 
with Paul, who is Jewish, and you will most certainly have a problem with the God of the Bible who picked the Jewish people to be his chosen people. Uh, Okay, so let's just be abundantly clear on this. When Paul says he has Jewish opponents, he doesn't mean that he hates the Jews. He means he has opponents, and they happen to be Jewish, just like Paul is. Okay, so let's be abundantly clear on this. He's got opponents. They're also Jewish like he is. It's just like any of us saying we have opponents. They're like us, and we don't agree with them on things. This is what Paul's talking about. And here's what's going on with these opponents Paul has who happen to be Jewish with him. It says this, that there's this kind of testing that's going on. He says this word, in the midst of severe testing. So like somehow this opposition he has to these opponents who are coming up against him is creating the type of environment in his life where he describes it as severe testing. Right before it, he says he he goes about it with tears. So here's what you've got for Paul. Paul gathers the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, and goes, okay, I'm going to say a few things to you before I go. But the first thing you need to remember is that this entire time, I've had these opponents who have severely tested me, like it's been this wildly difficult, overwhelming time of opposition for me. And yet here's the coolest part of this sentence. Don't miss this. What does he do in this wildly difficult, overwhelming time when people are opposing him? Here's what it says in verse 19. I serve the Lord with great humility. You know what Paul knows? And you know what all of us need to know tonight? That that whatever the season, whatever's going on in your life, wherever you're at, whatever's happening in your family, in your life, in your body, with your friends, at your school, at your work, whatever's happening in the economy, whatever's happening in the world, that it is always the right time to serve. Always. That serving the Lord Jesus is not something we just wait for the opportune moment to do. That if you are to call yourself a follower of Jesus, and I know not everyone here does, but if you do call yourself a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that the key for you is not to wait for the perfectly right time in your life to start serving. It is to serve right now because it is always the right time to serve the Lord Jesus. And here's Paul in the midst of severe persecution, like everyone's coming after him. And what's like the one thing he says that's a summary of his life? I serve the Lord Jesus. That's what he did in that season. And I talked to far too many Christians, like far too many Christians who'd want to serve and they kind of have that heart or kind of have that idea within them. But then they start to come up with reasons why now is not the right time for them to jump into serving. Why now is not the right time for them to use their gifts and talents and spiritual gifts and abilities and passions to serve the Lord. But here's what I'm convinced of. Um, There are going to be things that change in our life, but, but here's what's true about you and me, that your season of life may change the method of your service, but never the mandate to serve. Like I want you to be clear on that. There are seasons of life we go through, and the method in which we serve is going to look different. So when I was in college, I served every single summer of my life, four four summers before college, on a houseboating summer camp ministry. So I would go up to the Sacramento River Delta. I would be on a houseboat, serving kids, teaching them about Jesus, driving them on ski boats. That was my act of service in that season of life. Now, Now, what I'll very clearly point out is that I have not been since the summer of 2009 on a houseboat. So that was a season of life where I served, but that season has changed. But the season changes, the method changes, but the mandate for Pastor Brian Howard to serve has not changed. Like my job is to serve. It is not, it's going to change in terms of season. Like it changes in terms of season. Uh, I remember uh, when my wife had her first baby or our first baby, um, she was serving in the high school ministry here at the church. And that was like a really wonderful and beautiful season where we served together in high school ministry. But then she had our first baby. And she just couldn't serve in the same kind of way. Like she has a kid and suddenly she can't serve like she used to. The method of her service changed, but the mandate to serve didn't. You got to imagine the difference between a single mom with three kids and how she might serve versus someone in this room who's single and has no kids or maybe doesn't have a job right now and how you might serve. 
versus someone who's retired and in a different season. So again, the seasons of our life change the method of our service, but not the mandate. And here's the tragedy, that for far too many people, what happens is the season of their life does not seem conducive to them serving. So they punt it, but then they punt it for far too long. So I got a buddy of mine from college. I was talking to him one time. We were serving in a ministry together and he decided his time was done, which happens. Sometimes you're serving with a ministry. You kind of have a role in ministry and then you step out of that role. And what he said to me is that the season's just gotten too busy. And once the season's over, then he'll jump back into serving. Don't worry about it, Brian. And at the time I was nervous and my nervousness tended to actually, actually it played out to be real because here's what happened. My buddy didn't serve and he's still not serving. This was 12 years ago that he said the season's just gotten too busy and he still hasn't jumped into anything else. What's happened? Like the season changed and he thought the method had to change, but in fact, he gave up on the mandate. There is always a mandate on your life to serve in every season, in every change, in every circumstance. Because here's what we believe is true from the scriptures. And here's the first of the phrases we'll look at tonight, that we believe that saved people serve people. That's what we do. It's who we are. And when our leadership looks forward as a church, we see a church filled with disciples who utilize their spiritual gifts, abilities, passions, and experience to build up the church and to serve the world. This is what we believe God is calling us toward as a church, that in every season, whatever season you're in right now, that service would be a non-negotiable part of what it means to follow Jesus. Because listen to me, of all the things Jesus told us to do, serving was right at the center of it. Like serving wasn't some other thing, some extra thing, some like icing on the top. If you've got time, go ahead and serve. Right at the core of what it means to follow Jesus is to be a people who serve. Because listen, this is where the church gets it mixed up so often. Did you know that Jesus did not command his church to scream at people? Like he just didn't command his church to be the people who just get up and say like, you're wrong and you're bad and you're doing everything wrong and you should shape up and you should stop doing that stuff. Jesus did not command his church to scream at people. Listen, Jesus commanded his church to serve people. Like, that's what he called us to do. The church of Jesus Christ should be known not as a group that screams at people, but rather one that serves people. And how do we serve people? Like, like how has Jesus called us to serve? It's simple in two ways. Number one is we serve in spontaneous ways in the context of our lives. Like, spontaneous ways. So it's like you're just kind of walking along, and you're walking out of church tonight, and you see a piece of trash on the ground. And the impulse for so many of us is to be like, there's like a maintenance crew here, they'll take care of that. But you know what we do as followers of Jesus? We bend down, we pick up the trash, and we throw it in the trash can, right? It's someone's walking, and they're like a little far. You know, you hold the door for people when they're right behind you. But you ever had the awkward thing where they're a little too far behind you? And you're like, do I hold the door? Do I not? And like that kind of moment. But like as a follower of Jesus, I just want the answer to be like, yeah, I'll be that guy. And I'll make like an awkward joke. And I'll ask for money on the way. Like whatever. You know, like I'm just going to do that, right? I want to serve in the context of my life. I want to be the guy who was at my parents' house and they're getting up to do the dishes. And I said, no, 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 mom, mom, you sit down. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do the dishes tonight. Like I want to do the dishes. I want to serve people. I want to help them. I want to jump in when I'm asked to. I want to be someone who serves spontaneously in the context of my life. But then here's the second way we serve. We serve in structured ways in the context of ministry. So like there's this kind of spontaneous way where I just have this humility that says I want to serve in every season. But then there's actually something beautiful to us stepping into the structure of ministry where we are submitting ourselves to someone else's leadership and serving within the structure of something else. 
So that can be serving in children's ministry here. Some of you serve with our littlest kids in early childhood. Some of you hold babies. Some of you care about our elementary kids. You serve in middle school or high school or special abilities. Maybe you serve on a mission trip. Maybe you serve as part of our worship team here, but you're serving as part of a ministry. And here's what I'm convinced that followers of Jesus need to do. We need to have our eyes on both. Like it's important for us to serve in spontaneous ways. It's important for us to have this heartbeat that says like, I'm willing to hold the door for you. I'm willing to clean up a mess that wasn't mine. I'm willing to do something, but it's also important that we serve in structured ways. It's important that we're the type of people who discipline ourselves to serve even when we don't feel like it. Because if your whole act of service is just spontaneous, here's what'll happen. You'll eventually only serve when you feel like it. But here's what happens when you sign up to serve with fourth graders here at Calvary and you serve in Sunday school. Do you know that Sunday comes every seven days? So over and over and over again, you discipline yourself to serve. And so my heartbeat for us as a church is that we would serve in these spontaneous kind of ways, but also in these structured ways in the context of ministry. Here's what I want you to know. I'm not really interested in telling you what you have to do. Like I am interested in telling you that the mandate on your life is to serve. And yet, like Jesus never said, therefore you must serve as a fourth grade Sunday school leader here at Calvary. Uh, Like there's all kinds of ways you can serve. And so the question isn't, do I feel guilty or should I jump in or anything like that? I just want you to ask this question to yourself and ask this question like a few times until you can actually ask it honestly. And here's the question, is the Lord pleased with the ways I'm currently serving? Is the Lord pleased? Like not as Brian Howard pleased. Like, because if you're trying to please me or please your parents or please your friend, like, that's one thing. And like, you may get their approval, but what does it matter? Like, the question should actually be like, is the Lord pleased with the way I'm serving? And here's the answer for some of you. I think the answer is yes. Like, you're just like in this context of your life, spontaneously serving in the context of ministry. You're just like disciplining yourself to serve in that kind of structured way. But I think the answer for some of you, if you would just be real honest, is that the Lord is calling you to more. And you've punted serving in this season of life because you're busy or because you're tired or because you're overwhelmed or because you don't feel like you have enough time. And I just want to draw us back to this story where Paul is being persecuted, pushed against in every way, and yet the banner over his life is that he serves. So again, you don't owe me an answer on that, but I think you and the Lord should get together at some point in the next week. Turn off your phone, turn off everything, and just get before him and say, Lord, are you pleased? And maybe the answer is yes, but maybe the answer is no. And it's time for you to dive into some ministry, to dive into some acts of service. It goes on this way in verse 20. It says, you know, again, this is Paul speaking. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So calling people to turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is called something. When we talk about that, what we're talking about is sharing the gospel. The good news of Jesus. This is the act of evangelism. Evangelism is simply this. It is calling people to repentance. Repentance means people are going this way. And at some point, they put their foot in the ground. They turn around and they go in opposite direction. And then to have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that calling people to repentance is a supreme act of love. It's an act of love. Because if someone is walking down the road to destruction, if they are walking off a cliff, there is nothing less loving than saying, like, I don't want to get involved. I'm just going to let them go do their thing. I don't want to come off as judgmental. It is loving to call people in a gracious way back to Jesus, to have faith in him. But here's what Paul models for us. Um, He says, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God. And, And I think Paul is modeling something so different 
than how I kind of learned to do evangelism when I was growing up. So I have so many good things to say about the church I grew up in and the family I grew up in. And so I'm just not here to like dump on that, but that's what I received as a kid. Uh, I received kind of an instruction when it came to evangelism and sharing my faith that I've kind of described as like passive evangelism. And here's what passive evangelism is. Passive evangelism is kind of this evangelism where you're told just kind of like follow Jesus and live a really good life and be a really good person and help out where you can, serve and be a really positive person. And then if people ever look at you and then ask like, why is your life different or what's going on in your life at that point and only at that point are you allowed to talk about Jesus? And so the goal in life was just kind of like go along your way, do along your thing. And then when people ask, you respond and then you tell them about Jesus. And I just want to affirm something in that. Like, it is beautiful that you live the kind of life that is distinct and holy enough that people notice that you're different. And I think that is a beautiful and a wonderful thing. But what that ultimately created in my life was this kind of passiveness around evangelism, where I thought I was never supposed to bring it up first. I was never supposed to be the person who spoke first. I was always supposed to just kind of keep it to myself because I didn't want to be one of those Christians. And so I just kind of got passive about evangelism and never wanted to tell anyone about anything. But then here's what I realized in life. Like, the passive evangelism strategy makes Christians the only people in the world who aren't allowed to talk about what they care about, right? It's the only people in the world. You ever met someone who's on, like, a special diet? And I'm not like, being mean in here, but you're like, you're on the vegan diet, or you're on the paleo diet, or you're on this thing. Like, you're on some kind of special diet. And some of you are pointing, you're like, you, right? And, like, all you do is talk about it, and you're just constantly, you're like, hi, what's your name? Great to meet you. I'm vegan. Great, wonderful. Like, I don't care. That's awesome. But they talk about it constantly, or some kind of workout program, or some kind of thing, or they went to some kind of college. You ever notice people at their college when they're really proud of it? Like, it's all they want to talk about. They wear the hat. They wear the sweatshirt. They're constantly talking about where they went to school. They're constantly advertising that. Or people like me who have children, like I'm just constantly talking about my children. You can be like, Brian, how's your day going? I'm like, let me tell you about my daughter, Hope. Right? Why? Because we talk about what we care about and what's important to us. We actually just uninvited, we speak about that kind of stuff. And so again, what happens for the passive evangelism is we're the only people in the world who are like, we care about this ultimate, but we're not going to speak about it unless anyone asks. What Paul models for us is something so different. Like what Paul models for us is a proactive kind of evangelism, where we're actually the people who want to speak about Jesus. Even if people don't ask us, even if people don't beg us to tell them, we're just going to be the people who talk about what we care about because that's what human beings were designed to do, to share what God has made us passionate about. And that, here's what we mean. Here's how that translates um, to these core behaviors and these core values for the church, that we believe that found people find people. Uh, like if you know Jesus... Here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not that you found Jesus. It's that Jesus found you. It's that you wanted nothing to do with God. And Jesus was like, I want her. I want him. Jesus found you. Jesus loved you. Jesus sought you out. It was like a heat-seeking missile of God's love for your life. Jesus came after you when you wanted nothing to do with him. And because Jesus found you, you know what your life's mission is? Go help find other people. Like through the power of the Holy Spirit, go find other people to tell about Jesus. Here's what we see as a leadership. We see a church that is filled with disciples who were energized by the mission of introducing unsaved neighbors, families, colleagues, and friends to Jesus. Like that's what we want to be. We want to be a people who aren't just kind of passively hoping someday someone will come to church or someone will ask us about Jesus. We want to be a people who speak out loud and tell people about what's most important to us. Now, now every time I talk about evangelism, I feel like one of the things I have to do is like kind of clear the deck a little bit 
Because there's so many assumptions built into evangelism that maybe even some of you in this room have. And I just want to be abundantly clear. When I talk about telling people about Jesus, what I am saying and what I'm not saying. So, so let me give you five things that like active or effective evangelism does not require. Like if you want to share your faith and be effective in this segment, five things that this, this does not mean for your life. Number one, you do not have to preach. You don't have to preach. Some of you might be called to preach. God's put that call on my life. But for most of you, God's not put that call on your life. And I think what happens to some people is they go, well, like, like, Pastor Brian, he's the preacher guy, or Pastor Sean, or Pastor Brian, or Pastor Sarah, they're the preacher people, right? And so they get up here and they preach, but that's not my role. Listen, you don't have to preach. In fact, I want to let you know that sometimes the fact that I'm a pastor actually makes evangelism harder. Because they hear I'm a pastor, it's almost like I'm a used car salesman coming up to them talking about this car over here, right? And so they back off. But for you, you actually have this advantage that you're not. So like, number one, you don't have to preach. Number two, can I just free you from this? You don't have to approach strangers. Like, like that's some people's calling and gift. And I've seen effective street evangelism where people just walk up. They're like, let me talk about your shoes. You got cool shoes there. Do you know how good the good, the good news of the people, the, how blessed are the feet of those who bring good news? And like suddenly they're talking about Jesus. It's amazing. They're like, you have a good day. You have a coffee in your hand. You know what else can wake you up to the goodness of the Lord? Like they can just do that. That's not my gifting. Like, you'll just never see me out there at the promenade doing that. I don't have anything against people who do. I just want you to know that's not necessarily your calling. Your calling isn't to be someone who can just walk up and confidently, like, get in an elevator, and by the time the doors go ding and it opens, like, they come to Christ and you baptize them in the elevator. Like, that is not your call. Uh, listen, number three, you don't have to be rude or judgmental. Like, this is none of the calls on our life, and yet sometimes we hear evangelism share about Jesus, and we think that it means we have to just walk up to people and be like, hey, you, are you not a Christian? No, I'm not a Christian. Well, you're the worst, right? And then you just, like, start, like, saying mean things to them. Do you know that that just, like, doesn't work ever? Like, in the history of ever, like, judging, angry, mean, rude, condescending does not communicate the love of Christ, because that's not the love of Christ. Like, you don't have to be rude. You don't have to be judgmental. You can be kind and gracious and good and patient because that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Like, listen, here's number four. You don't have to be an expert. Do you know that one of the most freeing sentences in all of Scripture is that Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He doesn't say you'll be my expert. He just says you'll be a witness. You know what the cool thing is? An expert, when they're brought up on the stand in court, has to know everything about the subject. A witness doesn't have to know everything. Here's all a witness has to say. Here's what I saw. Here's what I know. Here's what I experienced. And your call in evangelism isn't to know everything. So sometimes we don't want to share our faith because we're worried someone's going to be like, well, what about the dinosaurs? And you're like, I don't know, right? Or they're, they're asking you some question like, what about free will and like God's sovereignty? And you're like, I don't know how to square that circle. And so what do I do? And so you don't want to share. Listen, you don't have to know everything. You can just say, listen, I don't have all the answers. I just know God's moved so powerfully in my life. I want to tell you about that. You don't have to be an expert. You do have to be a witness. And then finally, can I just free some of you tonight? You don't have to be an extrovert. Do you know that some of the most powerful evangelists I know are introverts? And sometimes what we think is the evangelists are the people who are like salesmen and women who just walk up and they're shaking hands and they're getting to know everyone and they're just all out there. No, 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 no. Some of the most powerful evangelists I know are the people who have deep, meaningful friendships and are able to leverage those for the sake of the kingdom. Uh, like I just want to free you that this is not what we're calling you toward. Like, this is not the evangelism we're talking about, where you have to be this preacher, this, like, approaching strangers, rude, judgmental, expert, confident, extrovert. You don't have to be those things. So what are we calling you toward? Well, let me make it real clear. Look at verse 20. We'll go back to the text itself. Paul says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. So here's the two ones I want you to zero in on. The word publicly and the words house to house. 
publicly and house to house. How do we share the gospel publicly and house to house? Publicly, this means this. Publicly, we, we, this gospel proclamation happens in the gathered church. So when we get together here on Thursday nights or we get together on the weekends, when we gather as a church and we declare that Christ Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead for your salvation, and if you call on the name of the Lord, your sins can be forgiven. Like when we declare the gospel here, that is the gospel proclamation in the gathered church. When Paul says publicly, he's talking about a moment like this, a room like this. And when it comes to evangelism, a found people like us finding people, you know what our role is in the public proclamation of the gospel? Our role is invitation and hospitality. That's our job. That's our role. Our role is to invite people into this. It is to tell people to come with us. It is to bring people with us. It's to drive people here. And then it is, this is so important, it's to have hospitality. Because listen, and maybe this is actually you tonight, or maybe this has been you. Like if you come to a church service and don't actually know anything about church, it can be frightening and overwhelming. Like imagine if someone from another religion invited you to their service. You would be terrified that you were going to say something wrong, do something wrong, be judged, be in the wrong. You would be terrified. And when people walk in here, we just need to like disarm them. We need to let them know they're welcome, that they're cared about, that if they don't want to sing the songs, they don't have to sing the songs. If they don't like what the preacher's saying, you don't like it either sometimes. Like, it's okay to just welcome people in. Our job when we invite people in is to invite and to be hospitable in this place, to meet people, to welcome them, to bring down this kind of fear that people have that this place is a place of judgment and condemnation because it's not. Why do we do this? Why do we invite people in? It's simple. Because we invite who we care about to what we care about. We invite who we care about to what we care about. Like I'll illustrate this to you in a $61 billion per year industry in the United States of America. $61 billion, billion with a B, is spent every single year on weddings in the United States of America. On weddings. And I just want to like crack a code for you in case you're kind of looking out into your future. I got married, beautiful wedding here at the church, big reception, um, went and did amazing things. It cost way too much money. But do you know that you can get married without any of that? You don't have to invite anyone at all. And people who are engaged sometimes think about, like, what if we just went to the courthouse? What if we just went away? You don't have to invite anyone at all. You can just go get married and send out a little note to everyone, like, ta-da. Like, you can do that. And yet we don't do that. As a nation, we spend $61 billion a year inviting people to come to our thing. $61 billion a year inviting all you people to come to our thing. And over and over and over again, you receive invites to weddings, don't you? And I promise you this, you don't receive invites to weddings and look at them and be like, these people keep inviting me to things that are all about what they care about. Like, what's this? You don't throw it in the trash and you go, that's ridiculous. No, you look at it and you go, this is important to them. So I'm going to do what it takes to be there because we invite the people we love to join us in what we love. We invite people we care about to join us in what we care about. That's what evangelism can be. We invite people into this space. We say, this matters to me. Would you join me in this? This is important to me. This defines me. This helps shape me. Would you join me in this? Again, Paul proclaims the gospel publicly. And what do we do? We do it in this gathered church where we invite people in. And then it says he invited people house to house. House to house. This is gospel proclamation, not through the gathered church, but through the scattered church. So gathered and scattered is the idea we get together every Thursday, but then you like go places. Like hopefully none of you like sleep here at the church, right? Like you go back to your homes, you go back to your campuses, you go back to your cities, you go back to where you come from. And we share the gospel as the scattered church. 
And when we share the gospel as a scattered church, that's us doing gospel work in this community. And what's our role there? Our role is curiosity and conversation. Like notice I didn't say your role is to like confront people and tell them how awful they are. Your job is curiosity and conversation. Why? Because you approaching someone and saying, I have all the answers, you're an idiot, listen to me, has never worked in the history of ever, right? So what do we do? We show curiosity. You know my favorite gospel conversation to stir up with people if I don't know where they are with God? I just go, what are your thoughts on God? And then I just listen, because everyone's got thoughts on God. Even people who don't believe in God have thoughts on God. Everyone wants to talk about their thoughts on God. Me sharing my thoughts on things is my favorite thing to do, and it's your favorite thing to do. So you ask them questions, you get curious, you have conversation, you share where you're at, you plunge into the depths of where they are. Our role is to talk about Jesus in such a way that we actually believe in him. You know how shocking it is to me how many Christians, and I do this myself, there's times where I'm at church and I talk like Jesus, how are you? God has blessed me, I'm so good, brother, it's so great. And then I go to somewhere where it's not a Christian environment, and they're like, how are you? I'm like, good. Why don't I say in non-Christian environments that God has been good to me and he's blessed me today? Why do I speak like a Christian at church and an atheist everywhere else? That's what I want to ask us. We talk about Jesus as if he's real because he is. He's the lion. He's loose in this world. So what do we do? We tell people who we care about about what we care about. We tell people we care about about what we care about. And the question for the Christian should be this. The thing that should drive our evangelism is this question. This question, who do you care about? Who is it that you are interested in? Because if we're going to live and love like Jesus, the answer from Scripture is so clear. This sentence is found multiple times in the gospel. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. If we're going to live and love like Jesus, if we're going to be shaped and molded into the image of him, we've got to care about the people Jesus cares about. And that's the lost. It's the people far from God. It's the people who don't know that the God of the universe loves them like crazy and would do anything to get them into his family through the blood of his son. Verse 22, it goes on this way, and it says, Now and I'm compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns men that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given to me. Let me read that sentence over you again. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you are among whom that I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Now I commit to God the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's gold or silver or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Verse 35, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. So, so Paul's whole speech is like, hey guys, I was with you, I served you, I proclaimed the gospel to you, I've been all in with you, I'm leaving. But here's what I want you to remember on the way out. I did everything I could to not be a burden to you, I did everything I could to serve you, but as I leave, I want you to remember that we must do this hard work. Why? He says we must help the weak. 
This is not a suggestion. This is not a hope. He is telling the church in this season, and he is telling the church in every season, that we must be a people who help the weak. You'll see that word, the weak, there. Now, it's interesting. In our culture, we really don't like the word weak. Because that suggests there are strong people and weak people, and that seems kind of judgmental and exclusive. But I want you to know the Bible is comfortable with this. And I want you to know why the scriptures is. I want you to see the word here. The word for the weak is the word astheneho. Astheneho means the weak, the feeble, those without strength and those who are powerless. And here's what I want to suggest to you. The weak does not describe some other kind of person other than you. The weak describes you. It describes me. And if you're like, no, no, Brian, I'm strong. I'm confident, I'm powerful, I've got it all together. You can keep on living in that illusion until the diagnosis comes. You can keep on living in that illusion until someone you care about gets sick or hurt. You can keep on living on that illusion until something happens that is out of your control that rips everything away from you. We are the weak. Who are the weak is the question. The weak is simple. The weak are human beings living in a broken, sinful world. That's who the weak are. The weak are these human beings like you and me who live in a broken world, a sinful world, where pain and brokenness is about us. Who are the weak here at this church? Let me read to you. They're the children and students who we serve in our family ministries. They're the people affected by disabilities that we welcome in our special abilities ministry. They're the lonely people who find community in our small groups ministry. They're the discouraged individuals who find strength in our worship services. They're the grieving families who find healing through our care ministries. They're the hurting and desperate who are prayed for by our prayer groups. They're the men and women who find encouragement in our adult ministries. They're the hungry families who receive help through our outreach ministries. They're the widows and shut-ins who receive comfort from our seasoned adult ministries. They're the families in crisis who receive funds from our benevolence fund. They're the global poor and marginalized who find hope through our missions partners. This is who the weak are. The weak are the people that this church serves. The weak are you and me in the hardest, most difficult moments of our life, being served and loved by the people of God, being cared for by God's church. And here's the question I want to ask tonight. How does our church care for this many people? How does our church care for the weak on a large scale? How do we be the type of people who care for the weak? How do we do this, not just for individuals, but for thousands of people who call Calvary home? And here are the three answers. We pray for people. We believe that prayer is not an afterthought. It is a first reaction. It is not a last resort. It is the first thing we go to. We serve people. We get on our knees and we serve. We get our hands dirty and we serve and we love and we care. And the final thing is this, that we give. We give financially to help the weak. This is not some afterthought for Christians. This is not some extra thing to do when it's nice. This is not something to do later in life when you're rich. It is something that it means to follow Jesus. Listen, we give something to help the weak because God gave everything when we were at our weakest. God gave everything. Romans chapter five and verse eight tells us this, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were at our worst, while we were at our farthest from him, Christ died for us. That's a gospel story right there. So the gospel story is that God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. And so in order for us to live in love like Jesus, we must be a people who give. We must be a people who are generous. Here's what we believe as a church. We believe grateful people are giving people. And we see a church that is filled with people who give regularly, proportionately, generously, and cheerfully to the work of the Lord through this church. This is what we see. Like we wanna be a giving people, why? Because Jesus gave to us. 
We're grateful people, and because we're grateful for what God did for us, we give to other people freely and generously, proportionately. You know what proportionately means? It means if you have a very little amount of money, you give a little. If you have a lot, you give a lot. If you're somewhere in between, you give somewhere in between. But we be the type of people who give. And listen, I know that for some of you, like a church talking about giving is like nails on a chalkboard. It's like the last thing you want to hear. But here's what I want you to know, and it's true of every church you'll ever go to in the rest of your life, that a church that will not talk about giving is a church that will not disciple its people. I want you to know that money and giving is not some non-spiritual part of your life. You know what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said a shocking sentence. Here's what he said. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. Like, shouldn't he say you cannot serve both God and the devil, both God and the enemy? Shouldn't he say you can't serve both good and evil? No, he says you can't serve God and money. You got to pick one. And so either God is going to have mastery over your life or money and possessions will. And so as a church, we want to be a people who disciple you in this area. We want to be a people who are courageous to talk about this because we care about your discipleship. Uh, like, listen, we, I've said this over and over again, that this is not us trying to like, get money out of this room because we think this room funds the church. We're trying to get you to give generously because it shapes you into the type of person who's like Jesus. Yeah. And so how do we do this? Listen, um, some of you give regularly to this church or to another church. Maybe you're not part of this church and you give to that church, some other church. Praise God for that, seriously. And I just want to say, if you are already giving, I want to say thank you. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for responding to God's grace. I want to encourage you to keep it up because as you let go of money, that just it takes away the power of money over your life. But I want to speak to you right now if you don't give anywhere. If you don't give to this church, if you don't give to any church, I want to shepherd your heart right now toward the things that God cares about. Again, you cannot serve both God and money. And I want to shepherd you away from money and into who God is. And here's the three phrases I want to use to shepherd you into giving if you don't give anything at all. The first one is simple. Start now. Yeah. Now. You know what the biggest lie some of you believe? I'll give later in my life when I'm rich. Do you know that the people who give when they're rich gave when they were poor? I'll give later. I'll give when I get this real job. I'll give when I'm out of college. I'll give when I get a raise. I'll give someday when I have this. I'll give when my loans are paid off. I'll give someday. Those people never end up giving. Start now. Start with something. The people who end up giving are the people who start giving when they're not sure they can. Number one, start now. Number two, start small. Start small. Uh, author um, James Clear says it this way. He says, a habit, or we could say a spiritual discipline, must be established before it's improved. And so the goal is for us to be the type of people who say, listen, um, I'm not going to try to give to a certain huge percent. You know, out there, there's that 10% idea. And some of you just think that's so crazy. You could never do that. I want to urge you that you don't think like, how can I hit this perfect level? I just want to urge you to start small and to start somewhere. And so somewhere might be as simple as this. I've said this to this room before, that you would start giving $1 a week to the church. And if, again, if this isn't your church and there's another church, start giving there $1 a week. And I was challenged at $1 a week because I really think if $52 is the issue, there's something bigger going on in your life. I want to challenge us to say, I'm going to start now. I'm going to start small. I'm going to start giving on this regular basis, $1 a week, to just get myself in the habit. It's like this. You, know, you think $1 a week, what's that going to do? It's like if you told me you wanted to run a marathon. I wouldn't be like, all right, you're running a marathon in June, so here's how you train. Tomorrow, go run a marathon. I would never say that, right? Because you would just destroy yourself. It wouldn't really work. How would you start? Maybe by running a mile, and then the next day, two miles, and the next day, maybe two more miles. And, and you keep building up slowly. That's how we do it. We start now. We start small. And then here's the third thing. We set a new floor. So what we do is, okay, I'm going to give $1 a week. I'm going to start doing that slowly. And then the next year, I'm going to raise that up to $2 or $2.25 a week, right? I'm going to start raising that floor. 
Like at some point, my wife and I made a decision throughout the course of our life um, that we were going to give more money away every year for the rest of our life. And it's been about seven years of us doing that where we raise it. And some years we raise it a lot. And some years we raise it just a little bit. And if someday we lose everything and we can't do that, oh, well, we'll start over and start a new floor and start working up from there. But wouldn't you want that to be said about your life? That you became a more generous person every single year for the rest of your life? That's what I want to be true about me. And it's what I want to be true about you. I want to encourage you to be someone who gives to the ministry of a church. Again, if it's not this church and you have another church, praise God, it's not about your money coming here. But if this is your church and this is your family and you want to help care for the weak, care for these ministries that serve the people, the broken and hurting people in this world, I want to encourage you to do that. Why? Because we are never more like Jesus than when we're giving. We are never more like Jesus than when we are giving. And I want to invite us into this. Verse 35 says this, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus. And I love this phrase because Jesus is, this is one of the only times in scripture we see a phrase from Jesus that we don't actually find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you know the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus never says in there is more blessed to give than receive. So it's like this passage from Jesus, the saying he said that got passed down, that never got written down in the Gospels, which is okay, because it got passed down to Paul. And Paul remembers this phrase, and he says, here's what you need to do in the moments where you're asked to give, where you're asked to serve, where you're asked to share the Gospel. All three of the things we've talked about tonight are sort of these external, outside of myself things. Here's what Paul wants you to remember, that Jesus motivates us to serve and share and give by promising us blessing. That's what Jesus promises over your life. He says, remember that it's more blessed to give than receive. So in the moments where you feel challenged and pushed outside of your comfort zone, if right now you're like, I don't want to give away my money, remember it's more blessed to give than receive. If right now you don't want to serve, remember it's more blessed to give than to receive. Like the other night, um, my my daughter has just been sleeping terrible, my my eight-month-old Hope, and and it's been terrible. And we get up in the middle of the night, and i got to tell you, when I get up in the middle of the night, I'm not like, I get to serve my daughter right now. Like, I'm not excited about that. But here's what I need to remember. Jesus told me it's more blessed to serve my daughter Hope than to receive. It's more blessed to give than receive. In the moments where you're asked to do something or asked to serve or asked to go outside of yourself, asked to push yourself, I don't want you to think, well, I'm really just sacrificing and I'll never get this back. No, I want you to go, I am giving because God is going to bless me. God is going to honor this within me. It's not that God's going to bless you financially. It's not like you give a dollar, he'll give you two. Like that's nonsense theology. But what is beautiful is that God blesses those who are willing to get outside of themselves. The real blessing in this life is not by hoarding everything to yourself. It is by giving away. And so here's the question it becomes. It's this simple. Like, do you want God's blessing on your life? And, and like, I think the answer for all of us would be yes. If anyone's answer is like, no, nah, I don't think so. Like, I, I don't know what to do with that. But if the answer is yes, I want God's blessing on my life. God just makes it so clear here in this passage. Blessed, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Like, receiving's awesome. Giving's even better. And that's what I want to invite us into, that we share the gospel, that we serve, that we give away generously, not because like it's our duty and God, whether God blesses us. No, we just, Jesus lays this out as a reward. He said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I want us to hold on to that. Here's how the text ends tonight. The story closes out this way. It simply says this, that Paul finished speaking and he knelt down with them and prayed. And they wept as he embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most is his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Like in other words, Paul is being led by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And if you remember from what we read, it said that there's pain and trials. He's going to be in prison. It's not going to go well. But the Holy Spirit told him to go. So what's Paul going to do? He's going to do it. 
because that's what you do. Remember last week, we talked about the two-step formula for spiritual growth. You listen to God and you do what he says. You listen to God and you do what he says. That is the two-steps formula for spiritual growth. That's how we grow in spiritual maturity. And so as we close the sermon tonight, I want us thinking, okay, what has God told me to do and how can I put that into action? This is the two, we'll put this up on the screen, this two-step formula for spiritual growth. We listen to God and we do what he says. And so here's um, how I want to close out the service tonight. Um, We've talked about these values, um, these behaviors, uh, and we'll put them on the screen right now, all about Jesus, delighting in God's word, life change happens in relationship, found people, find people, save people, serve people, grateful people are giving people. Uh, And the question I just want to end with tonight is this one, what step of obedience is God calling me to take? Like, what's the step? Because again, like if you're just hearing the sermon, you're like, it was a great sermon, great worship, went home, just kind of do your thing. Like, it's cool that you came to church, but like growth comes through like listening to God and doing what he says. And so I want to call you to something tonight. And here, here's how we're going to do that. Um, right now, um, I want to give you a really practical way um, to think about next steps in your life. Uh, maybe the Holy Spirit's just screaming at you right now, and you just know what that is, and that's beautiful. Uh, but maybe it's an opportunity for you to kind of step back a little bit and go, okay, God, um, I need to know, I need to get my head around how to take these next steps. And so here's how we're going to do this. Um, right now, I'm going to put a QR code uh, up on the screen. Uh, and I want to invite everyone, if you would, um, go ahead and grab your phones right now. Um, this is kind of how we're going to end this uh, part of the service, and then we're going to sing a few songs and head home as always. Uh, I want to invite you to go ahead and aim your phone at this QR code. It'll make it all the way across the room, I promise. Um, and what it'll do is it will pop up a little form. And, and this form is simply uh, what we've called our next step card. There's nothing groundbreaking here, nothing shocking here, but it asks for your name and your email. And the reason for this is because I want you to take these next steps and then we want to send you resources. We're not going to ask anything from you. We just want to give things to you. But here's what we're going to do. You're going to do that. You're going to go to this form. Our band is going to make their way up right now. And here's what I want you to do. You're going to see these six values on this form right here. And what I want to ask you to do is our band is going to start singing um, a song here. And I want to ask you to stay seated. And during this time, I want you to be on your phone. I want you to just be scrolling through that phone going, okay, are there any of these next steps God is calling me to take? Maybe it's something totally different that you know God is calling you toward and you want to put that in the bottom box there um, that just says um, something else and you can do that. But I want to urge you to take one of these steps. It's all about Jesus. Maybe tonight you need to come to faith in Jesus. Maybe you need to get baptized. God's people delight in God's word. Maybe you need to start reading the Bible every day. We'll send you a Bible reading plan. Maybe it's the life change happens in relationship and you need to join a small group. We'll connect with you about getting in one. Maybe it's the save people, serve people. You know what? You haven't been serving in a structured way. And so it's time for you to serve. We'll send you information about that. But right now, um, I'm just going to close the sermon by giving you space with the creator of the universe and the Holy Spirit of God to move in your heart. Because here's how we grow. We listen to the Lord Jesus and we do what he says. And I want to invite you to stay seated right now. We'll tell you when to stand and we can sing. But you look through that card and you ask God, what are you calling me to do tonight?